welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. You better hold on tight, spider monkeys, because today we are discussing one of my favorite pieces <laughs> of cinema and literature ever. Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart may be art house characters and Oscar nominees today, but it all started here. Joining me to sink our teeth into Stephanie Meyer's still beloved series, Twilight, are Richard L. Morrill Chair in Ethics and Democratic Values at the University of Richmond, Dr. Jess Flanagan. Hi. And who else but our good old pal, Deputy Managing Editor at Reason, Natalie Dowzicki. Natalie, how are you? Happy to be back. <laughs> I feel like there's so much that we could talk about in this movie. This might be a three-parter, for all we know. I, I don't know <laughs> if I can contain myself. But where where to begin? Is it the Mormonism? Is it the pent-up uh, er- eroticism in- inherent in that? Is it the depiction of like found family and prejudice i think where we should start though is the sort of relationship dynamics that are going on here um because that i think is the real heart of the story is how these characters treat each other and i think because of the you know generally pretty heteronormative uh dynamics going on at play here we have to talk about the difference between male and female characters what does it mean to be Team Jacob or Team Edward? I mean, what what are how are the male characters in this and how do they relate to specifically Bella? Like, are they well written? Uh, if they're not well written, are are they flawed in a sort of complicated and interesting way or just in a bad way? W- where do you go from here? So there's two, I would make two distinctions. I'm going to talk about the movie characters and the way they were written different from the book. Um, just partially because the book characters are slightly different and it's been, been a hot minute since I read, um, all three books. Uh, Oh, well, yeah, four. (laughs) Wow. Do you even know Twilight, Natalie? (laughs) Yes. I, I grew up in the prime age of Twilight. I was one of those that went to the movies when the the day they were released. Wait, so you were a Twihard. I just want to confirm you were a (laughs) Twihard. Um, maybe not. I would not self-proclaim myself that well, way. Well, we're we're proclaiming it now, but please continue. Um, so I think there there's an interesting dynamic going on here because Robert Pattinson, he is very paternalistic. Um, it really creeps me out that he like no one like seems to care that he watches Bella while she sleeps. And like she and he like basically like this is before they were ever like a, before they're in like a commit like a relationship in air quotes. And, um, he like watched her when she sleeps, he like stalks her and like, it's just like a very, very creep creeper vibe. Um, and then on the, on the flip side, team Jacob, uh, the werewolves and, uh, the beloved shark boy from shark boy and lava girl, Taylor Lautner. Um, <laughs> he is like very, I, Hey, he's also paternalistic, but it's a different style. It's more so like he doesn't think Bella can protect herself. So he's like interested in being like Bella, like Bella's protector, um, which is why Team Jacob and Team Edward clash because they both have the common interest of Bella. But yet no one seems to ask Bella how she feels about this weird dynamic. Um, so I think that's kind of like the dynamic that's at play. Um, and I just think there's a lot of questionable male characters. Like if I if I were to see one of these male characters in the wild in real life, I'd be like, no, this this man isn't like attractive because he looks like a vampire. He's just creepy. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So just to warn you, I'm just like completely like overthink all of these cultural products because I please, think please do. It's our bread and that is our the butter. Whole point. It's just like such a stand-in <laughs> for things that I think are going on like in the broader moment when it comes to gender politics. And um, so I agree that like the Jacob Edward dichotomy are supposed to be these kinds of archetypes. And I would think like Jacob is sort of a stand-in for a conception of male entitlement, which is like um, the friend zone type view where it's like the men think that they are entitled to romantic partnership because they're treating a woman like a person in a friendship-like way. And so that's kind of like the dark side of the kind of uh, thing that people I think is valuable, which is like a relational egalitarian marriage, the comparing marriage, where it's like people come to the relationship on equal terms and they sort of negotiate it like a friendship. And so the Jacob character, I think, is showing that like, you know, like the kind of contemporary liberal egalitarian approach to romantic partnership does have this kind of like sneaky dark side of like also smuggling in a kind of male entitlement that we don't really acknowledge. And then the Edward character is the kind of sense of male entitlement of like hierarchy, elitism, the man has the money, the man is rich, like that kind of um, like sugar daddy type thing that's like very stigmatized in society. But then the author is trying to show that like there's a flip side to that conception of masculinity, which is actually like that could be really liberating for women to like be able to kind of free themselves from both the emotional labor of like the friendship companionate marriage type stuff and to like let themselves be subject to a kind of caregiving relationship with their romantic partners. And that that doesn't necessarily have to be like a problematic expression of patriarchy. And so like, she's trying to like, I think that like the, those two archetypes are kind of like a critique of the sort of liberal egalitarian approach to heterosexual relationships to just way overthink it. But I do think that's going on. <laughs> oh, for sure. I I agree. And it's it's really interesting because the other thing that a lot of people, I mean, especially in hindsight, point out when looking at these movies is they're like, they're just so Mormon. Like Stephanie Meyer, when the, the books were written and when the movies came out, you know, she was still pretty involved in the in, in the process, sort of consulting from what I understand. Um the sort of pent up eroticism and the metaphor of, you know, turning someone into a vampire for and and refraining from that and the self-control sort of being an allegory for abstinence and, and you know, uh, sexual relations with these you know, teenagers that are going on. It, it got a lot of pushback because it was just like uh, another, you know, conservative a person who only cares about, you know, telling kids that it's it's bad to have sex. And sure, you could take it that way. But I think the parallels to Mormonism actually go much, much deeper than that. And it's it was actually I did not know this before we started researching for this episode. These parallels go way, way more in depth. Like when you look at the character specifically of Carlisle, who is the sort of head vampire uh, here in in Forks, Washington, that has basically created this little coven. Uh, he's the one that turned Edward and then his wife, uh, Esme, uh, and then all of the subsequent other vampire children. And he was part of the Volturi, the the uh, sort of 
up top boys and it's very much like they've got this roman catholic vibe it's very ornate the 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 sort of visual coding of them in the movies is very much supposed to 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 mirror that michael sheen is killing it serving a hundred percent committed michael kane in the muppet christmas carol realness oh my god and they have this sort of you know ornateness and it also separates them and creates a, a, an even larger power dynamic between like humans and vampires. Um, uh, but they are not afraid to enact violence upon these people. Whereas Carlisle sees the sort of flaws in this process as he's in the background sort of trying to ascend there and very much is a stand-in for a Joseph Smith character, a person who goes to the new world, establishes this religion that is kind of persecuted by the old guard, um, and sets out, travels far west, and creates a very, first of all, family-driven um, dynamic. Uh, and it even happens at the sort of same time historically as Joseph Smith. It sort of parallels between the two. And his his sort of focus is the, I mean, this is evident in a lot of, you know, Christianity, but it's codified in a really specific called out way in Mormonism of overcoming the natural man, sort of the, the constant resisting of your, uh, mortal urges and whatever temptations may come your way, you know, to, to sin, uh, in the eyes of God. And, in doing so, he's he's refraining from indulging in human blood drinking and the sort of using the stand-in of, of animals to say that that is a – he has chosen a harsher, more difficult life where his family is the center um, rather than pursue this indulgent desire. Um, and And so it was really, really interesting to me to see – you could certainly take, like, it, it seems like it could be very easily understood as paternalism bad. Like, Edward is, you know, sort of like, he, he doesn't trust Bella to be strong enough and he's just going to, like, devour her or something. It's this very, like, inherently, it, it starts out kind of deterministic. Um, but then by the end, you have Bella who sort of comes into herself and by, you know, joining with Edward and starting a family together, which becomes this sort of new center for them, they're both redeemed, which the sort of celestial marriage idea in Mormonism is, is very, very popular. It's not just like that, um, you know, marriage is a sacred thing, but it is a, a truly a spiritual act. Um, and so what could have easily been a very well-trod and sort of surface level thing is actually much more complex and influential and, and sort of shows Stephanie Meyer's influences as a storyteller than people give her credit for. And they, they, she got the stigma of being called just a, a Mormon housewife when this book came out a lot, which was really kind of condescending for a lot. Yeah, that's really, that's messed up. <laughs> and And even though she was a stay-at-home mom, as far as I'm aware, uh, and Mormon and those greatly influenced her life. While the books are technically not well written, there's a lot of sort of poorly written, stilted dialogue. I mean, Kristen Stewart did her best with that first script. She gets a lot of grief, but it, it wasn't her fault. I mean, <laughs> you just got to bite your lip when you don't know what you're what words you're saying. 
but she does tell a compelling story even if it is not well written and i think she's even said that i consider myself a storyteller not a writer so like what what does that make you think about the sort of underpinnings there and how stephanie meyer was treated as a woman but also maybe how that influenced the character of bella we've we've talked a lot about the male characters what do we think of the writing of bella well yeah i'm so glad that you brought up the the mormon angle before we talk about the the bella angle because um, I also think that this is like a thing that people sort of overlook, which is the time that these books came out was also like the beginning of the Mormon mommy blog craze, where there are all of these like very influential Mormon mommy blogs that really shaped kind of how contemporary motherhood has played out thinking about, you know, very early on thinking of like the performance of motherhood online and um which we have now more of social media, but Mormons have this like long tradition of journaling. So they were really at the forefront of it, like the Nini dialogues and Matt the Frat Rat. And so shout out to the people who used to read those blogs. Um, <laughs> Deuce was one. Um, so, and I really think like sort of thinking about this is also a Mormon text in the same way as those Mormon mommy blogs. And, you know, people easily like disparage the Mormon mommy blogs as being like female trivia. And they disparaged you know, this work as well. But like, low key, she's like the Penelope Fitzgerald of our time, like women who are just like, you know, doing domestic labor, but then also engaging in these really uh, ambitious creative projects, like that deserves so much respect. And then it is a very deeply Mormon text. And so not just the stuff you were saying about like, you know, like the thousand year marriage, which is like the song from the movies, but um Mormonism has this idea, unlike other Christian doctrines, of like it's not about uh, predestination. You're not pre- your life is not predetermined. You get um, they believe in agent causation, like you really are free. And the way that you can exercise your freedom is by not being subject to like your heteronomous desires. You're not subject. You're not a slave to your desires. You get freedom through the rules. Um, and then there's also this kind of attitude in Christianity more generally, but I think it's also we see a lot in Mormonism, particularly of like this idea of like maturity, like adults versus children and um, thinking about like what it is to be a child as this kind of like unencumberedness, which is sort of how the vampires and the werewolves both view the humans as having a kind of like the humans never talk about their religion. They never talk about their national identity or the political affiliation. They're just sort of like these like unencumbered innocent type people. And that's seen as a kind of like naivete, which is like both like worth protecting and preserving, but also sort of like a condition of like helpless ignorance. And that's like their sort of attitude, which is, I think has like a kind of Mormon theological foundation, but then just like culturally, like how they, um, like the the paradigm family, the Cullens, um, how they're really into like playing sports and being doctors. Like that's definitely like BYU energy there. Like, oh, we're going to play baseball. (laughs) Yeah. Like just the cultural signifiers. Strong BYU energy vibes. (laughs) Well, I was also thinking too, while you're like, like culturally speaking, the way that like family is prioritized in the, in the saga in general is very like uh, signifying of Mormonism. Uh, Also like there's this weird, now that I'm thinking about it, I was like, reading this one article that was saying that like how weird it is that people like viewed Edward as both like a father figure to Bella and a lover, 
which seems like is obviously gross. And I hate that comparison, but like, I could see why, like why that was like an emphasis because of the huge, like the huge plot line that is family that runs throughout this, um, saga. And like, and then when we get to the point where, uh, Edward doesn't want Bella having a child and like, we can, we're going to jump into that whole, um, that whole saga. Um, but I think like that too, like that was a very important plot turning point again, that's centered around the idea of family. Um, and I think Mormonism in particular compared to other religions, um, has much like the, the family is like a central role in your life. And also there's a sign of, I mean, just to bring the kind of like libertarian subtext here, you know how like Tyler Cowan and Megan McArdle are always talking about like, what's up with Utah? Like, why are the Mormons like <laughs> seemingly like so much more like, why is this like such a functioning society? And there is a sort of like, you know, Tyler Cowan's very suspicious of alcohol and then the Mormonism, the church of the LDS people, they have this kind of informal welfare state where it's like all sort of like outside of the state. And they have this kind of like presumptive suspicion of like the government, partly because like people from the government tried to murder them a long time ago. And so now they're like really paranoid about that. Right. So. So. <laughs> you suspicion. see their point. The suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there is a sort of kind of like self-help ideology that's like running through that. And I think that there is, that also is showing up in the book, both with, you know, thinking about the Cullens, but also just like looking at how even from a very early time, Bella's engaged in a bunch of domestic labor, like taking care of Charlie. Um, and there's this sort of like an independence that is prized in her, even when she's a teenager and like kind of participating in domestic labor and this kind of informal caregiving apparatus, which I think is close to that culture. And Bella like kind of doesn't not that she doesn't really have like that family structure without the Cullens. So like she has her dad who came back and doesn't really have a mom. Um, and so like I could see her seeking out like that type of family structure because she feels it was something that she was missing. Um, so like that, that's interesting too. Cause she's like kind of coming, coming into it as like partially orphan, even though she has a dad, but he's kind of like an absent dad type. When I was thinking about this, I was like, we're talking a lot about how the books are actually really clever in the way that they sort of parallel Mormonism. Um, but I was like, you know, but we also know that uh, the Mormon church historically as an institution, not always on personal levels, doesn't treat people's individual liberty in certain other uh, social aspects with as much respect. And so my first question and my question at first was going to be like, well, Obviously, we're getting – I mean, it is somewhat of a biased sort of framing of that metaphor going on there. But if you want to take the libertarian angle with it, perhaps you could say and, – and I'm curious about what you think about this – is that Carlyle and in creating his coven and sort of framing this sort of Mormon – uh, vehicle, se sort of separate from the highly institutionalized Volturi vampire community going on elsewhere, um, it's still relatively isolated. And while it is highly communal and wants to, he, he, I mean, he's a doctor. He's not just saving other vampires. He he works a day job where he helps humans all the time. Um, the kids, they just go to high school and dress in all white and walk around and act cooler than everyone and look 30 <laughs> years old. Um, yeah, that was, 
the casting. I, I mean, the what casting. Can you, it's these these that high was schoolers. movies. You know, there was there was an era where they were, and I mean, it still goes on today, where it's like you got to be at least twenty five to play a fourteen year old or something like that. But but they there is an air of them being. It, it is not a highly institutionalized thing. It is not like he wanted to create a completely separate parallel Volturi rise in power structure. He's like, I want to be left alone to do my own thing and help my community separate and sort of uh, informally in this very sort of libertarian friendly way um, where, you know, they they take care of themselves and without being interfered from by by other people, they are able to do that. So do you buy that? Do you think that that is, uh, first of all, I mean, do we lose something by sort of framing the Mormon angle in that way? Or, I mean, does it benefit that? And does it make it more sort of libertarian friendly? Framing it in terms of like the pioneer separatist spirit, like that definitely makes sense of thinking of it as like a break from the mainstream religious movements of the time. Um, I also think that there's, and maybe this is just because like the culture war has like rotted all of our brains, but like, I think that there is (laughs) something that there's a kind of subversive critique. And so there used to be this like debate, actually it was in reason, uh, maybe like 15 years ago or so which was like, should libertarians, should people be cultural conservatives or cultural liberals? Like, what should, what does libertarianism say about the culture? Um, and you might think like, well, nothing. But then you might think, well, actually, like many of the same political principles are also going to apply to like how you arrange your culture. Um, and so like politically, the Cullens are just like have this like pioneer separatist self-help plus like domestic labor being valued type view. Um, but then like, there is this, as you were saying, like internal to the religion, there's like a kind of conservatism about gender and there's a conservatism about family. Um, and I think that this is sort of trying to like, I mean, we all understand what the problems are with those approaches um, to like organizing society, which is like, it's very patriarchal. People might feel like they don't have a choice in it, but because it has this kind of like you're free through the rules, agent causation, like everybody's uh, making choices here at this really strong value of choice. Uh, what I think something that's the message of this book is like, sometimes it really can be a voluntary choice. And like, if you really are going to believe in like respecting women's choices and deferring to women about their choices, um, you might have to accept things that you think reflect a kind of culture of patriarchy. And you can't have it both ways. You can't say like, on one hand, like, yes, we believe women and women get to decide what happens to their bodies, what happens to themselves. And then when a woman makes decisions that you think is reflecting patriarchy or that you disagree with to say like, oh, well, that's an adaptive preference. We're not going to countenance that decision. Like we're not going to believe women when it comes to deciding to live in a conservative way. Um, And I think that's like a very like powerful point that's like made through these types of choices or it's like, or the, the, these stylistic choices that she's communicating, which is to just say like, look, there's a fundamental tension within the kind of dominant progressive narrative of like, on one hand, having extreme amounts of deference towards the testimony of women, but on the other hand, accusing women who make decisions you disagree with of having adaptive preferences in some way. Um, and so maybe I'm reading too much into that, but uh, even if I'm, I'm reading too much into it. I also think the point just stands more generally, which is that that's 
a problem for the critique of conservative culture. I also think it's interesting that like, so these are obvious, this is obviously like a young adult story. Right. Um, but so like, I'm just thinking back, like all, through everything that we've talked about is that like when I was reading the books, I had to, I, I, I was probably in like late elementary school, school, early middle school. when I was reading these books and, um, like I obviously just very surface level read it as, you know, a vampire vampire novels um and that that was that but it is funny that it's like kind of stuck through time um so like and even like well me and my housemates joke now we're like oh you know like let's watch twilight but like i i it's one of those stories that like i going back and watching it as like a 20 year old or has been like so strange right because like when i watched it when i first came out it was like oh yeah team what werewolves versus vampires and whatever. Um, but then like watching it like through in college or like now it's been like very, very, very clear that like there was a whole other story going on that like why and why is what it pick up on. And I, I think it's interesting that she chose to go through that, the young adult Avenue to tell the story just because like, you know, 15 or let's say 13 year olds who are reading it. I don't even think 13 year olds are reading Twilight anymore. I could be wrong, but um, like would not pick up on art. Are 13 year olds still reading Twilight? I think so. Yeah. I'm like, okay. I think it's, all right. I'm sure there's <laughs> some know. young moms out there who were like, you got to read this book. <laughs> I'm sure there are. Right. Yeah. They're like, they're like the moms yeah. that are my age now that are like, this was definitive in my upbringing. You must read it now. <laughs> I'm sure. My dad was like, you got to read The Hobbit when I was a kid. He was like, this is a great fantasy book. I'm yeah. sure there are moms who were like, Twilight. And this is why it holds up. Cause like, yeah, like, cause it's got layers. Like, you know, like the things that are going to endure are the things that like you could write a dissertation on. And like, this is one of those texts, both the films and the, books are like extremely culturally layered and they're bringing up like really timeless tropes in ways that are like new and interesting movies hold up too i mean if we're ranking them well it, it, you know well we're going in terms of actual quality breaking down part two breaking down part one <laughs> uh, new moon twilight eclipse new moon yeah Eclipse Eclipse is forgettable. (laughs) Twilight is up there, but it's not good. I like it because it's so bad. Uh, (laughs) uh, New Moon, they're starting to get a little bit more money. Breaking Dawn Part 1 and Part 2, they've got me by that point. Yeah, Breaking Dawn Part (laughs) 1 has got to be at the top because I feel like that is just like an incredible... Film and like- and I'll I'll let the I'll <laughs> let the I'll let the listeners in on a little behind the scenes information if they didn't if they don't follow us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod <laughs> Breaking Down Part One uh, just tweeted about uh, this film <laughs> at one point and said I could you know write a dissertation about this film about you know all these things and I pounced right on it and I was like we got to <laughs> do an episode about this and it was and it was done it was formulated it you know out yeah. of the ether <laughs> and here we are you should teach it in film school. Like here's here's my case just for it in like the the history of film and horror film. So Breaking Dawn Part One is a horror movie where the plot of the horror movie is that someone gets married after high school, goes on her honeymoon, gets pregnant, and has a baby. <laughs> and that is the plot of the horror movie. That's the whole movie. <laughs> and it's <Literally>. great. <laughs> and it's 
<laughs> like all of the body horror is just stuff that actually just happens in a regular pregnancy. So it's kind of like, you know, in The Exorcist where like the beginning of it, it's just like, you know, medical testing and like what medicine actually is. And it looks like it's yeah. a horror movie because it's like, <laughs> this is how medicine is. Like, isn't it horrific? And like, that is like a kind of similar genre as that, where it's just like pointing out how like horrifying it is to be like an embodied person doing like regular embodied person stuff. So like, you know, like she's severely anemic. Like, yeah, that happens in pregnancy. Like she breaks her back. Yeah. People break their backs when they're I was going to say when her, when her (laughs) goes a full 90 degree angle in one shot, it's, I was like, Oh, Oh. <laughs> also, does Dakota Fanning throw children onto pyres of burning flame? Is that Breaking Dawn Part One? Yeah, it's does in that the happen? Flashback. Does that happen? Okay, yeah. does yeah. that happen during pregnancy? Yeah. I, you know, I, having never had a child myself, I've never thrown a child onto a giant burning funeral pyre. <laughs> no, that's yeah, that's part of the horror movie. That's not part of ordinary pregnancy. But most of the body horror stuff is like. <laughs> Just like pretty regular, like ordinary, like she gets a C-section, you know, she needs to be injected with something because she's losing too much blood. Like all of that stuff is just things that happen to women very regularly. And it's presented in this way where everybody's freaking out about it. And I think that like, um, (laughs) and there is something about the vampires because they're so like alienated from like what it is to be an embodied human that leads them to be like really freaked out by the process of birth, which I think like we're also seeing now as like birth weights fall in society of like more and more people have this kind of fear of pregnancy and birth anxiety and like antinatalist views where they're like freaking out about people having children and um, because they're not around children as much and they're alienated from the birth process. And I know a lot of women are really afraid of pregnancy and birth in this way. And that's another way in which the Twilight movies just were like ahead of the cultural curve by just kind of capturing that sort of anxiety of like creative class elites who are themselves kind of alienated from family structures and human embodiment, um, having anxiety about pregnancy and birth. And like, that's just like the vampires, man. Like, oh my gosh, it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a good movie. (laughs) And then there's all that stuff about like reproductive freedom where Jacob is like, oh, like that's like disgusting that you're going to exercise your uh, sexual autonomy. And then like, once she does, like she's seemingly punished for it, but which is like an old trope, which is like women are punished for having sex, but actually like she doesn't see it as a punishment. She sees it as a privilege to be able to have kids. And then the vampires are like, oh, that's horrible that you want to become a mother. And it's like just turning on its head all the ways that people stigmatize women's bodily choices um, and trying to like reclaim again, like this kind of, domestic labor as having a kind of autonomy behind it and dignity for it. Oh. I have to say very briefly that just, <laughs> just, uh, I, I, I have never had a child, but even like watching this makes it h- horrific <laughs> <laughs> to think about having children. So I'm not sure if that was the intention. Um, you got to drink but, blood uh, out of a styrofoam cup. Yeah. When they show the blood That's going disgusting. up the straw, I was like, <laughs> Oh yeah, you're right. It's a horror movie. <laughs> But then it shows like how impressive it is. Like, it's just like the vampires have this kind of alienation from the process. And it's like, but look what the human body can do. Isn't that amazing? Like how heroic is Bella in that, that she's like capable of going through pregnancy and creating a whole life worth living. Like what an incredible thing that she can do. And like, she's the hero of that story. And I feel like that's such a powerful kind of natalist message that's really overlooked. 
it's really interesting, too, because you can see it being mistaken by the people who are like poorly written female characters, scared of babies, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also have people who are taking it the wrong way in the other direction, which I think spawns another very, very influential way that Twilight is a part of the culture now, which is Fifty Shades of Grey, um, which started as Twilight fan fiction before it was ever published as a novel. In case our listeners did not know, it was Twilight fan fiction where uh, Edward and Bella engaged in this uh, you know, BDSM light, as far as I'm aware. I haven't actually read them. Um, sort of type relationship. But in doing so, it is also even, it is also very, very poorly written. I think worse than Stephanie Meyer from the from the bits that I have read. Um, and it really does devolve into a not consensual try you know labeled as consensual but not consensual type relationship between Christian Grey and Anastasia Steele which it also takes place in Washington I will say I'm it's like when you look yeah. at them side by side it's like they really did very little work here I I also just think it's interesting like the whole like the whole sexual narrative that goes on throughout the saga because like we were talking about earlier like on the face of it, people argue like, oh, this is like another film about abstinence and like how like they shouldn't act on their sexual desires and like how Edward has to hold him back because he's going to eat, <laughs> eat Bella and like all this kind of stuff. And then um, like and then the fact that they turned that on its like on its head to into like a BDSM type thing is hilarious to me because the people that probably originally argued that this is like another story about abstinence and like how it's great that high schoolers are so young and not 35 year old vampires um and <laughs> and then they like turned it into a story that's like very strictly about sex right um which i i honestly just goes to show that it's like a good it's a good cultural story if it can be morphed into so many different interpretations well it shows also like how like narrow people think how narrowly people think about like the range of like acceptable sexuality, even though we think of our culture as being more sexually liberated. So like, if you think that you have, if you have a conception of sexuality, which thinks that abstinence is really important to you and that kind of has a sort of purity culture, oh, well, like that's problematic and we should not reify purity culture and we should reject abstinence. And then Fifty Shades of Grey is like, okay, same story, but now we're in the kink scene. And then people are like, oh no, the kink scene right. is super problematic. <laughs> and it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, does the range of sexual experience for people have to be like right within this like middle ground between purity culture and the kink scene? Like, it seems like both of them should be like acceptable. I agree. To- <laughs> I think the, the issue is that Christian Grey, while ostensibly engaging in a consensual relationship, is as far as I can tell, overtly controlling outside of this contract that he's negotiated with Anna Steele. At least this is the the sort of uh, criticism I've I've read of the of the film is that it it is not accurate in its depiction of the BDSM community, which is all about consent, and that he oversteps that bound 
even though that they have set their boundaries much further than what other people might have have likely said. But it, I think your argument still stands, Jess, which is that there is, I, I think, BDSM, BDSM and kink, while growing more and more accepted, is still relegated to the sidelines. And as long as both parties are consenting, I think anybody who listens to this podcast would likely understand and agree that that should be an acceptable thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe people like object to the way that the execution has been, like how the execution of the portrayal of it. But my sense of it is that the idea is to say, oh, this is voluntary because they had a contract. And if you make a contract, that's voluntary, then like, that's also an exercise of your will, which is, you know, freedom of contract, like, yep, like, uh, doesn't just freedom of contract, not just for the economy. Um, <laughs> so if you take that as, you know, as the intended message of it, then the critique still stands, which is, um, people might think that it looks like adaptive preferences. People might think that the woman is not a reliable narrator of her own will, but like that in itself is, I think, a impulse of trying to like discount women's testimony, which is inconsistent with the wow. accusation yeah. of adaptive preferences. That's true. And I think, I mean, obviously it becomes very, I mean, when you undertake the notion of fantasy in fiction writing, especially, it becomes very easy to discount these kind of stories when you really have no right to, um, you know, especially in something that is fiction, you can ostensibly write whatever you like because none of it is real. Um, and while it might be different with real people, still pushing away those types of stories simply because it is read with a subtext you have in mind doesn't, you know, fit. Um, it it can be condescending and and not you know fully capturing what the story is about. So I I think you're absolutely right. And while you could make arguments on a technical level about to you know where the consent line was crossed, you, then you get into issues about like the responsibility of the storyteller in you know depictions of a community like BDSM, which I think is completely separate from what we were talking about, which I, is you know really sort of with within the bounds of the narrative. Exactly. Yeah. Like. We should think like, I think we should be suspicious of these uh, responses to cultural products that center on female sexuality, because there are so many cultural products that are about like war and like, you know, some guy going out and like doing some killing or vigilante justice and like the Batman and stuff. And no one, Macho yeah, man. and no one has ever like, has this like finely tuned moral sensibilities about like the men's choices in these types of cases where we like agonize over whether or not the specific portrayal of their inner moral compass is exactly going to comport with our conceptions of like the ethics of male behavior. And so like the fact that people stress out so much about these cultural products is itself just like further proving the point that like what they're doing that's so powerful is uh, is launching a kind of unstated or rarely stated critique of how we encounter female sexuality. We got to talk about the part where the werewolves all are talking, but it's just CGI voiceover. <laughs> it's just like CGI dogs with a voiceover. Do you think they filmed it in front of a green screen? Like they had people in the wolf oh suits God. like standing around and they were like, just vamp. 
Like, can we get I some walla so. going on here? <laughs> and then they did a separate scene. So bad. Oh, my, my favorite, my favorite is when it, it's in Eclipse. It, well, it's not my favorite. It's one of my favorites is in Eclipse when Bella and Jacob are beginning to sort of kindle their romantic feelings after Edward has departed and fleed um, and uh, is, you know, distancing himself from Bella. Um, and they're working on the bikes in the barn. And the montage starts with the music and Bella goes to pick up some pizza that's been delivered from the barn. And I think she pays the guy and without even taking the box out of his hands, she opens up the lid, grabs a slice of piping hot, greasy za, and then spins around and throws (laughs) it like a Frisbee across this barn at Jacob. And then he turns around and he catches a wrench to show the passage of time. But who throws a greasy pizza pizza through the air? No plate, no napkin. Right at him. He's going to get burned. Like, you know, I I will burn my mouth. I will burn my mouth on a piece of pizza, you know, biting into it too fast. Can you imagine if one was hurtling at my face? I would be (laughs) scarred. It takes so many people to make a movie. Like they needed a prop director. They needed a cinematographer. (laughs) There was like a dozen people that were in on that scene that could have been like, this makes no sense. Why is Kristen Stewart throwing a piece of pizza? They had enough people writing the screenplay that no one thought we should clarify or at least give a redemption arc to Jasper, the Confederate general who just says, I was, you know, <laughs> walking away from the, conf- the the Civil War and I was down in Texas and I met some vampires and then I became a vampire person. And then he meets uh, uh, the psychic one who I can never remember, who I actually really Alice. like. She's a, uh, Alice, who is a great character. Alice. She's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, she's a good character. No redemption arc. We never get like, and I realize the error of my ways <laughs> or something like that. Like, yeah. he, for all we know, he still harbors terrible ideas about slavery. Like, who? Uh, I just. There are a lot of plot holes where I thought. You know, the writers, they watched this and they were like, yes, this is the way to go. And everyone else is sitting in like, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're just we're going to leave that unaddressed. <laughs> the pizza is definitely up there is one of those scenes where it's just like, why? I will, ne- I will <laughs> never. World? <laughs> I will never look at that scene. Also, I just want to, our listeners to know there is a book that came out on the 10th anniversary of Twilight called Life and Death, Twilight Reimagined. That is a gender swapped retelling of the story with Beaufort Swan, who goes by Bo. Also, his name is Beaufort. Is he a Confederate general? <laughs> Shout out to any Beaufort <laughs> listeners out there. Hope you enjoy the show. Um, and like Elise Cullen or something. And it tells the entire same story as the first novel. But when Beaufort gets bitten by uh, the tracker, not named James, it's a female tracker. They literally swapped everyone's gender. Um because you can't be killed by, a, you know, there's no male-on-male vampire killing going on, apparently. The, the metaphor would get too messy there. Um, <laughs> they, let, they let Beaufort Swan become a vampire. They fake his death and then abscond, and Beaufort and Elise uh, Cullen live happily ever after. And they have to go back and cover it all up, and then the werewolves, you know, sort of get angry about it. But the story ends there. They they don't exercise the sort of overt paternalism 
on the male vampire being turned, he's been expressing the same desires that Bella did in this story. But at the end, they go, you know what? It's okay. Let let these kids have it, which I think to me is emblematic of some of the problems of the story that we're getting here, even if it does kind of complicate the way that we were talking about how the story handles it well previously. I just love that tidbit of information. I'm going to go back and read it. This is separate from Midnight Sun, which is the retelling of the original Twilight story from Edward's point of view. There's a lot of POV changing sort of adaptations here. And all of these are canon as far as we're aware. These are not fan fiction stories. These are written by Stephanie Meyer. Yeah. Well, the reason that it probably wouldn't work if you do the full-on gender swap is that there's so much stuff about, like, female domestic labor and pregnancy. And, like, if you do the swapping, like, those types of cultural signifiers aren't going to carry the same kind of weight. And so then it's really just going to be about, like, conceptions of sexuality and gender. But all of the other stuff that's, like, in the broader patriarchal discourse stuff, like, that's all going to be kind of less relevant if you do the gender swap. So that kind of makes sense. I would just like to say, um, and Jess said this in the notes we left, the Wikipedia page for that (laughs) book is wild. Like, okay. So like I had never, I didn't even know it existed. So here I am on Google and like it, it is something else. So if you really need just like a quick version of the story, you should go to Wikipedia. (laughs) My knowledge of life and death is also from the Wikipedia. And I feel like... Oh, I, I fully admit it's enough. also from Wikipedia for me. <laughs> I did not read this book, but I read the Wikipedia article and I was stunned. And I had to I had to tell everyone yeah. I knew about it. Well, do you also think Stephanie Meyer was just like, well, how do I keep capitalizing like on this I'm sure, because she's was smart. Like, how- yeah, she another was like, Mormon value, yeah. capitalism. <laughs> she was like, I need to make oh, yeah. that paper. I got to get my paycheck yeah. and good on her. yeah. People bought it. Yeah, I'll take. I'll take some more. I'll take some more Twilight canon yeah. for you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would love it if they rebooted the movie series and they gender swapped that. Oh, I would die. <laughs> oh man, but don't make it good. Don't but- make it good. Do the whole first movie, but everyone's like greenish tints again. Oh, it's my favorite. <laughs> Don't spring on a color color correctionist, please. Still, still wondering why this movie didn't win any Oscars. But, it should you know. have. Won. If there was an Oscar for best original or for best uh, like compilation soundtrack, it would have won because every song in yes. this movie's slaps. It is banger after yeah. banger after banger. Yeah. No, it's emo canon. Whoever made the soundtrack really earned it because that was extremely well. It was just perfect. You're exactly right. But also important if you're talking about like the teenage experience, because like everybody's musical tastes kind of freeze right around that age. And so um, you have to have a great soundtrack if you want it to really stick with people. You also have to have a great soundtrack if your script isn't as, it's you know. It's true. It's true. No, <laughs> heresy. <laughs> I mean, I, we can say they were working with not not the greatest like technical, di- like the story of Twilight. I love the dialogue of Twilight. Could use some work. <laughs> for Taylor Lautner. <laughs> oh, and when they put him in that wig in the first movie with the heart, like oh the worst God, wig so I've bad. ever seen. It gets better in Eclipse. It gets a so little bad. bit better. But then I'm glad when they cut his hair. So it's bad. true. Also, the werewolves, do they have a dedicated jorts budget? Do they... <laughs> 
Do they scavenge? Because they they show them scattering to the wind when they transform, and then they come back all still wearing jorts. All still wearing them. Do you think they have caches hidden around the woods where as soon as they de-werewolf, they run around and are like, hold on, we gotta go find the cache and put on pants. But nobody's in a yeah. one that's so, like two sizes too big. Like they go over and no one's like, oh man, we only had larges. The forest of Washington State are well stocked with jorts. <laughs> Littered. Littered yeah, with jorts apparently. everywhere. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N. Lock with an E like the philosopher pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of libertarianism.org, is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by myself and our director and editor, Aaron Ross Powell. To learn more, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.